Father, we bow our hearts before you, the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened in the inner man, and that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and depth and length and breadth, and to know the love of God that passes knowledge and be filled with all the fullness of God. Lord, we know it takes strength to see you, strength to know you, strength to receive you, strength to rest in you. As paradoxical as it is, we are so rebellious and wired in other directions. If your almighty strength, according to the riches of your glory, does not overpower us, we will not see you, we will not taste you, we will not love you, we will not obey you or adore you or treasure you or worship you or glorify you. But if you would come, we will do them all. So come now and, and receive our worship that we have just sung and our worship now over your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I look at the nature of gospel worship and focus on Paul's unstoppable ambition to see God, Christ, worshipped among the peoples, I want to link up with Zane Pratt's message and draw your attention to four realities in our day concerning the cause of global Christian missions. I'm assuming that everybody in this room, at least theoretically, is committed to the cause of missions, seeking the glory of Christ and the conversion of sinners among the peoples of the world. And what I would pray for and long for is that this message, along with all of the others, would be used by God to turn theoretical agreement into joyful and, and fruitful engagement in missions for the sake of the worship of Christ among the people. So four realities, and then we're going to turn to a text. So reality number one, to quote Mark Knoll, Christian church historian, the church, the Christian church has experienced a larger geographical redistribution in the last 50 years than in any comparable period in its history, with the exception of the very earliest years of church history. For example, in 1900, Africa had 10 million Christians, which was about 10% of the population. By the year 2000, 100 years later, the number of Christians was 360 million, about half of the population of the continent. And he comments, this is probably the largest shift in religious affiliation that has ever occurred anywhere. 
Another illustration. There are 17 million baptized members of the Anglican Church in Nigeria, compared with 2.8 million in the United States. Last Sunday, more Christian believers attended church in China than in all of so-called Christian Europe. Kenya has more people in Christian churches on Sunday than Canada. More Christian workers from Brazil, from Brazil, are active in cross-cultural ministry outside their homeland than from Britain and from Canada. The point of those observations is that God is up to something in the last century, something astonishing, something unprecedented in the world. And we should be standing on tiptoes with expectation and eagerness to be engaged with what he's doing. Ephesians 3.20, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Did you ask for any of those? He did it anyway. (laughs) Reality number two. Nevertheless, our excitement, my excitement with those statistics every time I read them, is chastened by the centuries-long failure of the church to finish the missionary task. We've always known what Jesus said and what John says about him. Jesus said, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name to all the nations, Luke 24. And John said, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We've known, we've known that. But whole centuries have gone by and decades of our own lives and our hands have hung limp at our side in world evangelization. So, today there are 11,749 people groups in the world, according to IMB and peoplegroups.org, 16,547 according to the Joshua Project. If you're into this at all, you, you know there are different ways to count ethno-linguistic groups. For example, do you count Somalis as a different group in the Twin Cities and in Houston or Somalia? That's how you get the ambiguities of the numbers. So at least, let's say, 11,000 people groups total and 3,235 are what are called unengaged, which means nobody that we know of is presently targeting, even trying to get to them. There's no justifiable explanation for this 2,000 years after the Great Commission. Think of the size of the evangelical church in the world, the churches that believe in the Bible and the Great Commission. There are about 300 million evangelicals in the world. That's 92,000 evangelicals for every unengaged people group. Or to just bring it home, according to City Vision, research group with John Mayer here in the cities, Twin Cities, there are 2,150 evangelical churches in the greater Twin Cities area. Say that number again. 
2,150 evangelical churches in the greater Twin Cities area. That's more churches than there are missionaries to all the Buddhists in the world. 500 million Buddhist people, 2,000 missionaries that we know of trying to reach them. And we have more churches in the Twin Cities than there are, and that's just evangelical churches, doesn't count all the Catholic churches, which are many, 2,000 missionaries and 2,150 churches here. And think of all the churches in all the other metro areas, especially in the Bible Belt. So reality number two is the job is not finished and there's no good reason for it. But it is finishable because people groups can be reached in a definable way. Reality number three, every Christian has some gift that is needed in the cause of world evangelization. And the great need of the hour is for joyful, sacrificial courage in the cause. In World War II, the merchant marines lost more men in proportion to the size of the force than any other branch of the armed services. They weren't a branch of the armed services. One out of every 24 died as 1,554 ships were sunk by the German U-boats, some of them 15 miles off our shore. They, nevertheless, were the means by which World War II was won by the Allies. There is no way Britain could have survived without the supplies that the merchant marines brought. Or, after the war was engaged by our side, there would have been no troops supplied without the means through the merchant marines. Today, an example of that kind of essential ply line would be in missions, Missionary Aviation Fellowship, just to pick one example. I, I use it just because I read an article recently uh, where the president was quoted, and it was, I was moved by it. Every 10 minutes, an MAF plane takes off somewhere in the world, providing essential links between frontline missionaries and resources that are needed. What's the need? Pilots, mechanics, courage, especially courage. John Boyd is the CEO. Here's what he said. What will not change is the centrality of Christ in MAF's ministry and how we need to position ourselves in many countries where there's a hostility towards Christianity. One of the biggest challenges in Christian ministry and mission, particularly those who go to serve overseas in very difficult countries, is to have the courage to stay the course when the going gets tough, and the going is tough. So reality number three is that every Christian, either in frontline or merchant marine type support has a gift that is needed in the cause of world evangelization 
especially the need of joyful, self-sacrificing courage. Reality number four, before we turn to the text. During the modern missionary movement of the last 300 years, the missionaries who focused least on political transformation and most on personal conversion through the preaching of the gospel have brought about the greatest democratic reforms and the greatest social welfare. This is a fact that should be noted now and then, like now, (laughs) but not focused on because a focus backfires. Robert Woodbury, professor at Baylor, published five years ago, um, and he defends this, this thesis as a sociologist and teacher of religion there. Here's his thesis. The work of missionaries turns out to be the single largest factor in ensuring the health of nations. But here's the bombshell. Quote, the positive effect of missionaries on democracy applies only to conversionary Protestants. That's his term, conversionary Protestants. Protestant clergy financed by the state, as well as Catholic missionaries prior to the 1960s, had no comparable effect in the areas where they worked. Now, to be more specific, Woodbury's research makes this claim. Areas, quote, Areas where conversionist Protestant missionaries had a significant presence in the past are on average more economically developed today with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women, and more robust membership in non-governmental associations." Now, of course, being the scholar that he is, Woodbury admits, quote, there were and are racist missionaries and missionaries who do self-centered things, unquote. But then he adds this, if that were the average effect, we would expect that the places where the missionaries had influence to be worse than the places where missionaries weren't allowed or were restricted in action. And we find exactly the opposite on all kinds of outcomes." Close quote. And then he concludes, most missionaries didn't set out to be political activists, but came to colonial reform through the back door all these positive outcomes were somewhat unintended. So here's the lesson I'm drawing from that research and from my own understanding of Scripture. The way for missionaries to achieve the greatest social and cultural transformation is not to focus on social and cultural transformation. but on the gospel conversion 
of individuals from false religions and eternal damnation into the worship of the crucified Christ. Or to put it another way, missionaries will lose their culturally transforming power if they make cultural transformation their energizing focus. Read that, read that sentence again. That's my sentence. Missionaries will lose their culturally transforming power if they make cultural transformation their energizing focus. And you can smell it in pastors and workers and missionaries who, who would be happy if it happened in a century or who are driven by it. I'm saying the driven ones won't happen. There's a reason. There are several reasons. One reason for that is that conversion to Christ by the Spirit through faith accomplishes two things. One, rescue from the wrath of God and into the worship of Christ. That's one effect. And two, practical, moral transformation of life. Neither of those effects is authentic without the other. And it's the heartfelt worship of Christ that animates the transformation. So Greg Beals on the platform here today. He writes uh, in his book, one of his books, what people revere, they resemble either for ruin or for restoration, unquote. Therefore, those who pour their energy into restoration with no root in reverence fail. Gospel preaching missionaries with a passion to rescue people from eternal suffering have changed the world. That's statistically true because that was not their focus. Which is why I said we should take note of this political effect now and then, like now, but not make it a focus, because as a focus, it backfires. So those are my four introductory realities that I see as I look out at the lay of the land, and I hope it awakens you to the importance and relevance of this afternoon's message and now my effort to get at gospel worship in relation to Paul's ambition to see it happen among the nations. So I invite you to open your Bible to Romans 15. No passage. Pastors, you want, you want a series? You want an agenda? Here it is. No passage from Paul's writings is more laden with practical implications for missions, global missions, than Romans 15. None. You could preach a year easy on this chapter and call it the year of missions. Don't recommend that necessarily. Just saying, you could. So don't feel like, I don't know where to go. You've just been told where to go in the Bible 
if you want to do a series on missions or come back to it over and over again. I'm going to limit myself to six important truths that I see here. Here's, here. I'll just name them and then we'll go at it. One, the gospel of God's mercy in Christ. Get, get, get that clear again. Number two, the worship of the God of the gospel of mercy. Number three, the importance of seeing peoples and not just people, as Zane underlined today. Four, the gospel ambition of Paul the pioneer. Five, the sending of a, of a gospel church. And six, the praying of a gospel people. Okay, here we go. Number one, the gospel of God's mercy in Christ. Just to set us up again, chapter 15, verse 8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant. So Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm his promises given to the patriarchs. Okay, you stop there, and there's, there's a purpose for Christ coming as a servant. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. There's a second purpose. But let's, let's get the servant gospel clear first. Here's what, he, here's what he said, Jesus even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So when Paul says that he became a servant to the Jewish people, this is the background. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And then Paul says it again like this. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Meaning what? Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the, the servanthood was moving from equality with God, not being grasped, entering manhood, being born in the likeness of men, becoming obedient as a servant unto death, a particular death, a death on a cross. So, in Romans 15, 8 and 9, Paul says that the, the aim of this servanthood is twofold. One, a purpose for Israel. Two, a purpose for the Gentiles. So, one, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. I have come to the Jewish people to validate everything that God said about Israel. And all the promises to Israel are yes in Jesus. And second, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So when the Jewish builders rejected the stone, what happened? Jesus said, Matthew 21, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected? So the Jewish, he came to the Jewish people to validate the promises, and the builders, the, the Jewish people, took the stone and threw it outside the city. 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Matthew 21, 42. So the mercy of God in the coming of the servant spills over Israel, spills over the banks of Israel. This is a text I would have quoted if I'd been on that panel today to continue what was already being said. The, the great redemptive historical change that happened with the coming of the Messiah is that the, the come-see religion with the focus on Israel for 2,000 years is now, that kingdom is being taken away and given to a people who will bear the fruits of it, and that is the Gentiles from every people, tongue, tribe, and nation, and the gospel ends. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So, the gospel in, in this these two verses, 8 and 9, is that God sends His Son as a servant first to, to confirm all the promises. Yes, they are amen in Christ. And when that's rejected, He spills over onto the Gentiles, and the world has never been the same since. That mercy, that servanthood goes out to save the nations. What then was the aim of God in this overflow of mercy? This is point number two. The worship of God, the worship of God for his mercy. Verse 9. <clears throat> in order, he became a servant, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now notice, not just that the Gentiles might receive God's mercy or experience God's mercy, but that they might glorify God for His mercy. The aim of the gospel overflowing to the Gentiles, the aim of the gospel is not man-centered. It is not ultimately that you might have mercy. It's ultimately that you might glorify God for receiving mercy. Right? He does not say Christ became a servant in order that the Gentiles might receive mercy. He does not say that. He says Christ became a servant in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for receiving mercy from God. The ultimate aim of the gospel is God. God glorified for His mercy. Don't fall short of the ultimate aim of the gospel when you preach the gospel. Don't preach mercy to sinners as the aim of the gospel ultimately. Don't always be stopping short of the point of verse 9. Get there. Get there. Not just 
that they might receive mercy, but that they might glorify God for His mercy. Mercy is a means, not an end. Savoring mercy, savoring mercy is not the end. Savoring God for His mercy is the end. I wonder if if your people ever hear you make that distinction. I hope they will. If, if If you don't teach your people those seemingly slight adjustments, they will remain American man-centered people. They won't become radical, God-centered people. Because this text is written in a way to help us break out of making ourselves the end of the gospel. How does Paul unpack the word glorify? So the, the, the aim of the gospel is that the Gentiles would glorify God for His mercy. So mercy comes, sweet, wonderful, awakens us, and then what do we do? do? He says we glorify. Well, how does he unpack that? Verses 9 to 12, he does it with four Old Testament quotations. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Verse 10. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and all the peoples extol him. Verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. In him, in him will the Gentiles hope. So, how does he unpack the the verb glorify? Praise, sing, rejoice, praise, extol, hope. Now, when you read that, what do you do next? What do you do next? You try to think about the relationship between those words. Is there some deeper, some higher, some means, some end, some cause, some effect? Glorifying God for His mercy starts with the emotion of joy and hope. The others are acts from that. Praise, sing, extol, joy and hope are these impossible to create realities down here. Joy as you savor the merciful God now and hope as you happily expect to savor Him more and more in the future, especially the ultimate future. And then that joy and hope overflows in praise and song and extolling. So, I'm, I'm, I'm going to argue the essence of gospel worship, the essence of gospel worship is heartfelt, hope-filled joy in the God of mercy 
overflowing in fitting expressions. Heartfelt, hope-filled joy in the God of mercy, overflowing in fitting outward expressions, which in Pauline thinking might be singing and might be soup kitchens. Romans 12.1, your reasonable service to present your body to serve people, love people. Whatever joy issues in for the good of others, joy in God's mercy Overflowing in song on Sunday morning and soup kitchen on Tuesday night is worship. God is being shown to be worthy because you're satisfied in Him and treasuring Him right here. Otherwise, it's vain, Jesus said in Matthew 15, 8. So, the essence, the essence, I'm saying, of worship is this heartfelt, hope-filled joy in the God of mercy. And the reason I say essence uh, is because I know there are other emotions besides joy that are important components of corporate worship and individual worship. For example, the sorrows of confession of sin. Weep, you people with dirty hands, James says. Commands them to weep. That's not a command to rejoice. So I know that other emotions are necessary to a full-orbed, especially corporate, experience, as well as individual experience, of worship. However, I'm staying with the word essence for joy, because those sorrows are not true worship, unless they are sorrows for not experiencing joy in God. You can have, have sorrows for all kinds of reasons that isn't God-exalting and isn't worshipful. doesn't show the worth of God. But if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and you've lived most of your week as though money is good, and you come into a worship service and by a song or a reading or the simple work of the Holy Spirit are awakened to your idolatry that you have found more pleasure in the world than in God and you feel bad about that, the root of that bad feeling is joy. <laughs> and therefore, joyful, heartfelt, hope-filled Delight in the God of mercy is the essence of worship. It's not the totality of worship, but it is, it is the essence. And that's amazingly good news that he would say the aim of the gospel is that that would happen among the Gentiles. That the Gentiles would glorify God for his mercy. And I've unpacked glorify in terms of joy and hope and praise and song and extol, just like Paul did. And the reason that's such amazing news is that we get the mercy, God gets the glory. We get the joy, God gets the praise. We get the hope, 
God gets the honor. Such a deal. This is the best of all possible worlds. That God would set up the universe in such a way that his praise and his glory and his honor would be a function of my joy and hope. Amazing. So, we are calling the nations to be glad. <laughs> let the nations be glad. And that's not the opposite of let the nations worship God. That's the essence of worshiping God, which is why the gospel is called gospel. <laughs> Euangelion. Not whatever the opposite of you is in Greek. I don't know. <laughs> you know? Okay. I should have looked that up. <laughs> it's good news. It's good news. Because what I'm commanding you to do, namely lay down all your idolatry and false worships, is to find your ultimate satisfaction in a God who finds his glory in that satisfaction. Such a world have we been given. Step number three. The importance of seeing peoples and not just people. I'll go quick here because Zane hit this one well. So here we are, chapter 15, verses 9 through 12. It seems to me there's little doubt that the word Gentiles is sometimes used in the Apostle Paul to refer to individual non-Jews. I'm not disputing that. I think you can find instances where Gentiles refers to individual non-Jews. <coughs> That's not what he's doing here. Here, verse 11 is the key. He quotes Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. So the parallel is Gentiles and peoples. Laoi. In the Septuagint. Laoi. Laos. Not individuals. These are a people. <laughs> I remember one time... When I first started using the word peoples at Bethlehem, goodness gracious, a long time ago, a little, little, little girl looked over at her mom and said, is peoples a word? I said, yes, that's a perfect question. Of course, people is plural. You don't put an S on plurals unless there's a worldview here. I mean, what a golden moment, right? I'll take a week, little girl, and talk about the world. Talk about the world he made in an S. <laughs> Revelation 5, 9. Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That, that string of words, tribe, language, people, nation is, I think, a, an admission on the part of John that there aren't precise categories here. We, we, we can, we'll just beat ourselves up to death trying to carve the world up into the little blocks that we do. They are real blocks. They are real groupings. And he just gives them four names to say, let's go get them all. God means to have them all in the, the throne room. So I think that's the gist and 
You know, um, 1974, I was in Germany, and, and uh, the Big Lausanne Conference was held uh, just 100 miles away from where I was, and, and uh, <laughs> the church was congratulating itself, me included, on how the church has now reached all the countries of the world. We're in every country. Everybody's celebrating until one afternoon, Ralph Winter stands up <laughs> and pops that, just pops that bubble by saying, excuse me, there are 17,000 peoples which is what go make disciples of all the nations means, not countries, means. And guess what? 90% of the missionaries are working with 10% of the most reached people in the world. It's just the air, just the, the lay of the land of missions has never been the same ever since 1974. What a gift to the church Ralph Winter was. We loved him at our church. He came back many times. <laughs> he was one of the most creative people. I could tell you great stories you'd love to hear, but I shouldn't do that. It's not in my notes. Um, <laughs> just, to, just to validate the, the focus on peoples, verse 11b, let the peoples extol you. Psalm 67, 3, let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Psalm 96, verse 3, declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. Psalm 97, verse 6, the heavens proclaim His righteousness. All the peoples see His glory. Psalm 99, verse 2, the Lord is exalted over all the peoples. God means to be known and worshipped among all the peoples of the world. And there are over 3,000 of them where nobody is even planning a strategy to make that happen. And I'll, I'll just be honest, I, I would love to be, along with Zane and everybody else in some way here, a means of shaking 50 of you pastors out of your pulpits into the unreached. I would, I would be happy to, to be that instrument. So may, may God be doing that right now. You've been, you've been thinking and praying. You, you took his question seriously today when he said one of the things you've got to do to preach the gospel authentically is to say, I'm willing, I'm willing to go myself. I, I'm 71. I say to Noel periodically, you still willing? And she's been wonderfully willing for 47 years though I don't know where I'll be in five years. I hope you don't either. Wouldn't that be great? Just let God have complete sway in this room right now. Just absolutely total sway. Just, just lay down every preconception of what the next 10 years is going to look like and see what he does. Number four, they go quicker now, I think. The gospel ambition of Paul, the pioneer missionary, Romans 15, 19 to 24. I think without an understanding of the difference between pioneer missions, or sometimes we use the term frontier missions and evangelism, without an understanding of the difference between those, uh, this text will be unintelligible. Let's read it. It's, it's amazing. From Jerusalem, you with me at verse 19, in the middle of the verse, I think? From Jerusalem, all the way around to Illyricum, 
Okay, now, get a little map. That's right up where Albania is, sort of, the Balkans. So Jerusalem up through Syria, around the corner, through Turkey, over down the east coast of Greece, up the other coast, bang, there's Illyrica. That's a lot of that's a lot of people and a lot of territory. From Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. That's unbelievable that he would say that. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have been told of him will see him. <coughs> And those who have never heard will understand this is the reason why I have so often been hindered in coming to you. In other words, I did have room. I had work to do, but now I'm done. Verse 23, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. I mean, that is crazy. I have no room for work here. I mean, he left behind Titus and Timothy as pastors of churches, plus all the other pastors he, he appointed in the churches, and he wrote him and he said, do the work of an evangelist. Why? <laughs> thousands of lost people in this region. Thousands and thousands of lost people in Asia and Bithynia and Cappadocia. There, there's thousands and thousands of lost people, and he says, I have no room here. I'm done. Now, there's a real simple explanation. There is such a thing as a missionary. Don't ever call everybody in your church a missionary. Yeah. <laughs> or, if you have to, Think of a new name for this. <laughs> like pioneer missionary, frontier missionary. I mean, that's what we all have to do. If, if you're going to be faithful to the Bible, like Paul saying, I've got no room for work here. Spain, zero. Zero witness in Spain. That's my calling. What do you call that? I call it a missionary. Or you can call it a frontier missionary or a pioneer missionary. Fine. No problem. Just... Raise up some of them. Teach the people about this. Because frankly, I don't know any way the, God, the Great Commission today can be finished without God continuing to do what he did here by burdening Paul types. There's Timothy types who left his hometown of Lystra, went over to Ephesus to spend the rest of his life. Probably get that. Call that a missionary if you want. But then there's Paul types who's, who's like, okay, I think Timothy can do this. He can evangelize these you know, 50,000 people here. I'm gone. I'm going to Spain. Carry a burden. Carry a torch for that. Believe that in your church, somebody is going to get that calling. Because if you believe that, pray that, exhort that, guess what? Your budget's going to go up in missions because they're going to want to go and they're going to blame you for it <laughs> and ask for money. And that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I no longer have any room for work in these regions is a calling 
that we must pray for and work for today because the unengaged peoples today will not be reached without Paul-type missionaries who feel this way. And I'm, I'm just praying right now that in this room, handful, armful of, of you would feel that call. I, I want to concede something here. Paul does focus on geography, okay? I don't want to overstate the focus on peoples in the Bible. It's a big focus. But you can overstate it to the exclusion of the importance of regions. And Paul clearly is using geographical language here. I have no more room for work in these regions. And then he says, my, my passion is to go where, where, that's a geographic word, where Christ has not been named. And my, my take on that is that Paul knew Greek, the lingua franca of the world that he knew, and he's going to go for broke with all he has. He didn't know, I mean, Hebrew's not going to do him much good except in the synagogues. He probably doesn't know any other languages, these barbarians. He doesn't know their language, but oh, he knows Greek, and he knows Hebrew, and he knows his Bible, and he's just going to go to as many places that doesn't have any witnesses as possible. Today, we have extraordinary research that is available to us, and we can be pretty rigorous in finding the peoples and making sure none of them goes un. Targeted. So his ambition, verse 20, if you wonder where we get this word ambition for this conference, it's verse 20, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. That's, that ambition has to continue if the job is going to get done. I hope you have an ambition. I hope you have a a strong, clear gospel ambition. Some of you are wired not to have ambitions. You don't think in those terms at all. And I want to encourage you to have one. Get one. Take a, take a retreat. Ask, if you're married, ask your spouse to give you two days on the weekend. Just go away with your Bible and a piece of paper, a, a notepad. Probably, probably not your computer, not your iPad. Leave your phone at home, maybe. Just your Bible and an iPad. And ask God, ask, get a group to pray for you, go away. And your goal would be, give me an ambition for the next 10 years. And it might be, I'm going to be the most faithful mom I can possibly be. Or it might be, I'm turning this neighborhood up for Jesus. Well, I don't know, but God would like to meet you there. He would like to do that. I remember in my my years of ministry, those periodic times when I just went away, or sometimes Noel and I went away together and just laid it out, Lord, what, say anything you want about the next five or ten years. Just say anything to us. We just want to get the noise out of our heads and be available. Give us a mission. And I remember in 1993 when our church came crashing down, we lost 230 people, didn't grow for four years. And then, then we pulled a group together and said, let's try to re-identify ourselves, think who we are, see if we can survive. And in the middle of that, they sent me away to a retreat center. Get my bearings here. I don't know where East-West is. But I went to St. Paul. Somebody point towards St. Paul. You don't know where you are either, do you? Okay. Doesn't matter. I went to St. Paul. <laughs> and, I, and I rented a room for two days, day and a half, 
in a, in a Catholic monastery over there in St. Paul, and they said, you come back with a, a mission for this church. It's on the walls of our, it's on the walls of our church right now. And, and I said, God, I need an ambition. And, and after about 36 hours, my ambition was, is, I exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ. Find yours. Write it on a piece of paper and put it in your wallet or your purse. And then remind yourself why you exist. Because if you don't have an ambition, something like that, could be more specific, less specific. If you don't have an ambition, you know what? You coast. You drift. You just drift in life. You get up in the morning, do you, you just do the next thing, and, and you drift. When Paul wrote, look carefully then how you walk, not as wise but as unwise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. He didn't mean drift. Redeeming. You, you, you see a day, you see an hour, you see a week, you see a decade, and you buy it for your ambition, your God-given ambition that he gave you when you took your retreat in February 2017. Number five, the sending of a gospel church. Verse 24 and 28 what makes it clear that Paul does not intend for all of you to be Paul-type missionaries is that he intends you to send him, not go with him. So I fully expect that the majority of you should feel zero guilt for being senders. Okay? I am one. I get that from verse 24 and 28. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain to be helped on my journey there. That's it. To be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. And then verse 28. When therefore I have completed this ministry, namely to the poor in Jerusalem, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. What did helping him on his journey mean? He's writing this. This is a, this is a missionary support letter. It, it's, a, it's an amazingly theological missionary support letter. <laughs> but, but the bottom line is, I, I'm coming, and you've read my 16 chapters of what I believe, and I would like you to get behind this mission. What did he expect that to look like? I think we know what he expected it to look like because the church that we saw do it is Philippi, and he writes the book of Philippians precisely to thank them and praise them for how they did it, right? Philippians 4.10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You indeed were concerned for me, but had no opportunity. <coughs> Verse 14 of Philippians 4, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. 
you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent for me help once and again. That's what he's talking about. And how did they get the help, remember? Not FedEx or whatever the Romans had. Epaphroditus was the mailman. And it almost cost him his life, is what Paul said. He loves this man. He calls him your messenger and minister to my need, Philippians 2.25. Your messenger and minister to my need. And then he says this, receive him. And he's sending him back. So Epaphroditus brought the help, support, support for the missionary. The Barnabas team, we call them, we call them Barnabas teams to support our missionaries, and they, they do this. So the Barnabas team sends one of their members over to Spain or wherever, Wherever he got it here, he's just down in Corinth, I think. And, and he, he sends him to Rome. He went to Rome and receive him back in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Would you dare say Epaphroditus did not have a holy ambition. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. And he's not a frontier missionary. He just kept him on the field. He just kept Paul doing what he's doing. Most of you are called to that. Keep them doing what they're doing. Raise them up, disciple them, like Zane said. Raise them up, disciple them, call them, equip them, pay for their education if you have to, send them, go to them, risk your life for them, be a merchant marine if you're not a marine. And be willing to let one every 26 of the supporters be taken out because they go into the dangerous place to make sure the troops are cared for. That's how you win wars, right? You lose lives to win wars. Finally, the praying of a gospel people, verses 30 to 32. And this is surprising. This is we got three minutes left. Here we go. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the, Lord, the, by the love of the Spirit, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. What? What do you want them to pray? That I may be delivered from the unbelievers in, Jeru in Judea. They're, they're dangerous. They don't like me so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. So if Paul's going to make it to Spain, he can't get killed in Palestine. So pray that I don't get taken out. That's what he's asking. Pray that I don't get taken out by the unbelievers in Jerusalem. Was that prayer answered? We have no evidence that Paul made it to Spain. And he didn't get killed in Jerusalem, but he got arrested. This is not the plan. Two years at least in prison, Caesarea. Has to save his life by appealing to Caesar. He does get back to Rome, not as a free missionary on his way to Spain in order to get killed as a martyr. Here's my question. Did they pray? 
pray for me that I not get waylaid by the unbelievers in Jerusalem. It didn't happen. And I don't know whether they prayed. I know this, the greatest missionary that ever lived pleaded for prayer and knew that his mission hung on it. And I know James says, we have not because we ask not. Real things happen in answer to prayer that would not have happened if we didn't pray. You believe that, Calvinists? I do. I'm a seven-point Calvinist. <laughs> real, real things in missions beyond your sight happen because you prayed, which wouldn't have happened had you not prayed. That ought to get us on our knees. Oh, my, what a... Amazing truth, that is. The God of the universe bearing his arm in response to little peons like us. That's what it says. Strive together with me in your prayers that I not be handed over to those people that are going to wreck my dream for Spain. And they wrecked it. And I don't know whether they prayed the way he wanted them to or not. Maybe not. And maybe that's why he didn't make it. To Spain. So, conclusion. The gospel of God's mercy in the coming of the servant Messiah has this ultimate aim that the Gentiles will glorify God for his mercy, which means that the aim of the gospel among the nations is worship, for all the peoples to join in worshiping the risen. Christ. To that end, God raises up pioneer missionaries, and He raises up churches to risk their lives to send them, and He raises up prayers to protect them and empower them. That's what He does. In support of those missionaries, most of you are called to be that kind of merchant marine. Both, the, the pioneer missionary and the supporter, sender, are celebrated. Epaphroditus is a hero. He's a hero for Paul, and he's not a frontier missionary. He's a, he's a team member that risks his life to keep frontier missionaries where they are, doing what they're doing. God is doing amazing things in our day. And the mission is not finished. There's a place for every one of you. And... Uh, I want to close like this, which may sound a little bit tangential. In my mind, it's not. If it turns out that the U.S. government settles on a refugee policy based on fear and callousness to the most vulnerable people outside the womb, the gospel-believing church in America is not constrained to embrace that mindset or those fears or be limited by that action. We march to a different drum. We have a different king.
Our citizenship belongs elsewhere. And in response, in response to that policy, that mindset, we should say to the world, the world, by our action, if our government fears and excludes you, we will come to you. We will come to you. We will increase. We will increase our age-long commitment to send and support a steady stream of missionaries and support workers out, out of America who carry the best news in the world and who care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. And thus, we will bear witness that we are not governed by fear or by hardness of heart, but by Jesus Christ, who became a servant unto death, that all the peoples might glorify God for His mercy. Let's pray. So, Father, these are big words, high words, easy to say. And all of us right now in the quietness of this closing moment, I think at least most of us in this room would want to say to you right now, anything, Lord, anything you say, anywhere, anytime, any way, because you've promised you'd be enough. Like Zane said, I'll be with you. I'm going to the ends of the age with you. And I pray the pastors would be utterly devoted to raising up Paul-type missionaries and then producing the kind of radical senders who are willing to risk their life to keep them doing what they do. I ask this in Jesus' name.